I bought this shirt on the clearance rack. It was like three bucks. And I'm like, oh, I got to wear it before Thanksgiving. This, why it was three bucks, I rolled down the sleeves. It'd be like here and here. Okay, so. Everybody passed the class. But if you're choking, do not let me help you. Unless you want a tracheotomy, because I really wanted to try one of those. So, so that's, that's about it. Uh, okay, who, who normally, because I know people jump services all the time, but who and who normally makes like second service their service? Let me see your hand. Oh, holy crap. Okay, so. All right, so I'm going to tell you something I need from you, all right? Uh, I need some people, like maybe once a month or once every six weeks or something like that, to maybe come and just watch like a couple babies in the nursery during the 815 service. Please? <laughs> we got like three, three babies coming, and they all are loud, okay? So if, if some of you guys would be willing to do that, maybe, you know, like once every six weeks, oh, I'll come at 815 and just watch like a couple babies in the nursery. If you would do that, uh, let either the guys at the Welcome Center or Christy know about that. You would totally help me out. And that's why I have to ask this service, because it's just that 815 service that we... Need that for. So, um, all right, our agape meals are right around the corner, and uh, if you are in a GC, hopefully you are hosting one of those. If you're not in the gospel community, hopefully you've been invited to one of those, and if you haven't, you need to look at somebody in a gospel community and say, hey, what's wrong with you? Hey, you need to invite me to one of these. Uh, these agape dinners are way, ways for us to open up our homes to invite, you know, you, your neighbors, everybody kind of into for us to hang out and get to know each other and love each other better and reflect who God is a little bit better. Uh, if you are in uh, a GC and you need some of the uh, provisions that we're giving you uh, this week, uh, Manette will be in the back. Just talk to her. She'll give you like uh, napkins and plates and those kind of things that you need. If you are not in a GC and you'd like to go to an agape dinner, Mikey, uh, Michael Reed right there, he'll be in the back. He's going to come up and wave at you. There he goes, waving right now. Uh, let him know and he will sign you up and, and let you know and get you connected to uh, GC to get at an agape dinner. All right? You guys are like, yeah, thanks. That's something I'm not even going to do. You need to do it. I had a vision from the Lord, and he said, you all need to go, yeah, what? Oh, and he said, you all need to go to one of these meals, because after this message, you're going to feel really bad if you don't. Okay, so, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, or if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and the questions that go along with that. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, and it says, While he was in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand what you have bestowed upon your people. Not just those of us who believe, but everybody. That you have given us dignity, value, and worth. And we would live that by how we treat people around us, but ultimately how we lift you up in our lives. So that all men would know that you are God, and all people would know how much you care. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our fifth week of our Jesus series. Uh, This is kind of like early Advent for a lot of people. Uh, The word Advent comes from the Latin for 
coming. Uh, uh, Advent was a season in church history that was celebrated as a time that led up to where we celebrate Christ's birth, which is what we call Christmas. It was waiting and preparation for this to happen. It typically started four weeks before Christmas, but because we like Christmas so much, we started it five weeks ago. Go us. All right, so it's going to go all the way through Christmas and then some weeks after that. And this is a series about what Jesus did, but what also Jesus did to change the world. He changes us and the world and what he inspires in us by what he has done. And so, again, in this series, if you have somebody who you would like to introduce to who Jesus is, bring them to this. It'll be a great series for them to go through. Every other week, I'm switching off with somebody. It's not just because I'm lazy. But I want to give you a larger and broader view of what Jesus has done in people's lives. Now, today, I want to start with a statement. It goes back to the founding of our country. You've probably heard it, and it's this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain and inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's lots of ideas in that, and and I can't really go through every one of those because we only got like half an hour this morning. I'm going to run late anyway, just warning you. Uh, but here, there's the idea that human beings, they are not accidents. We are created. That there is a creator, that this creator gives human beings endowments. That means he confers worth upon us. That means we have rights. And for a society or a nation or a culture to be truly excellent, it must recognize and then honor those rights. That's not just true for some. It's true for every human being that all men are created equal. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that all human beings are created equal? No, you don't. Because you don't live that way. None of us live that way. We think that we are better than other people. It is why we can get so offended when somebody cuts us off in traffic. It is why we can hold a grudge for one, five, ten years ago. Remember what they did to me ten years ago? Oh, how dare they? And we, because we think that we are better than them. Not that we have ever messed up. And so we always put ourselves above other people. Now, see, when, when I met my wife, uh, not that she thinks she's not... She didn't think she's better than me. I think she's better than me. But but I always feared my wife would find somebody else because I, I knew that I wasn't that great of a catch. I mean, when I, I she played sports, she knew people who were good at sports. That's not me. You know, she's smart. She knows people who are smart. That's not me. You know, and so I'm like, why? Why me? And I'm kind of still waiting for the answer because it's like, uh, because, you know, that, that's what I got. And in the ancient world, like today, they did not believe it was not self-evident that all men were created equal. And so scholars have actually debated when Thomas Jefferson wrote that. We hold these truths to be self-evident. The ancient world saw things differently. If you go to philosophy class, they will hold up Aristotle. And they say, oh, Aristotle was such a wonderful man. Aristotle wrote that inequality and subjugation of a master and a slave is just the natural order of things. This is what he wrote. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation and others for rule. Now, Aristotle was not a slave, so of course it was easy for him to say those things. So who comes between Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson to change the way we think about this? Because it did not just happen by accident. Who comes between them? Jesus. See, you're in church. 50% of the time you yell out, Jesus, you're going to be right. So there you go. He changed our, wor- our world in ways that are largely unnoticed today. And sometimes they're things that we don't live up to, but our world has still been shaped by them. Yale philosopher Nicholas Wolsterstorff, who is a Christian, he writes a book called Justice. And this is what he writes. We all now take for granted our moral subculture of rights. We are oblivious to how extraordinary it is, and he says it again, how extraordinary it is that we should recognize human rights and personal rights. He says that throughout history, human beings by nature tend to be tribal all the way back to ancient times. And so we don't think of outsiders as having the same worth and rights that we do. You can see this today, Democrats and Republicans, right? 
They hate each other. There's like no common ground. It's like, you're horrible. You want to destroy our country. You're horrible. You want to destroy our country. It's like, it's like there's no common ground in there whatsoever. Uh, you can see this in like people who own Harley Davidsons and people who own any other kind of motorcycle. I, I own a Buell and it's got a Harley Sportster engine in it and I down, drive down the road like, you know, a crazy kid and I'm all, I'm like, hey, Harley guy. And a lot of Harley guys are like, just drive. I'm like, what? But then I think on the other side of that, you drive by me in your scooter and you wave to me. I'm not waving back. You drive a scooter for shame. I mean, it's, it's like that. Some people know what a fox says. And some people don't. See, YouTube it. You'll get it, what I'm talking about. It'll be the worst thing you ever watched, and you will never be able to get it out of your mind. It's horrible. So Wolserstorff, he asks this. What accounts for the emergence of this unusual thing, this moral subculture that says every human being, no matter who, has rights? He says the teaching that starts in the Hebrew Scriptures and it comes to fulfillment in Jesus, that every human being has actually been made by God, by the one and only God, in the image of this God. And so every human being is loved by this God. And this is the idea that changes the world, the thoughts that the world has about people, that Jesus brought dignity to the individual. Wolstersdorf writes this, Our moral subculture of rights is as frail as it is remarkable. See, today we take it for granted, but it's kind of really an aberration throughout the many, many millennia of human history. You know, and if this belief in this rights-endowing, worth-giving creator vanishes, which it's starting to do in our culture, then human beings cannot be understood as bearing the image and the dignity and the, and the love of this God. What has really been the foundation for the way we understand and think about the worth and the right of the individual, what if that evaporates? The entire, entire world would miss the point of what it means to be on this planet of what it means to truly love God as he's called us to love and love others as he's called us to love. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through one occasion where Jesus kind of talks about this and teaches this. It's at a dinner. There's four movements in this, so you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And this is one of those awkward dinners. I don't know if you've ever had an awkward dinner where you're talking about something and someone says something that's just really awkward and out of place. Just invite Jonathan Whitaker over for dinner sometime. You will experience it yourself. That's Luke chapter 14. Every service, I get to pick somebody out and make fun of them. It's great. It's awesome. So uh, what you've got to understand as we go through this is try and figure out what goes on in the heart of the mind of the man who's hosting this dinner who invites Jesus. Okay. So movement number one, Luke 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So here's a dinner. Okay, the host is a Pharisee, and he's not just any Pharisee, he's a very prominent Pharisee. And this guy shows up who suffers from dropsy or edema. This is where uh, bodily fluids cause certain areas to swell up. The guy is probably not invited, though probably one of the Pharisees planted him there to see what would happen. Because it tells you Jesus is being carefully watched. So what's Jesus going to do? It's the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath or do anything on the Sabbath. They had lots of rules about the Sabbath. And one of those is you don't heal anybody on the Sabbath unless their life is in jeopardy. That's the rule. So if Jesus is polite to the Pharisees, he will pretend not to notice this guy. This is exactly like, see, I love this because in church I can make this analogy. It's exactly like if you're in a, in a building like this and someone has a baby and they just start crying. Ah! What's the plight? thing? we all go, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. Right? There's a nursery in the back. There's kids perking. I'm going, you can put your kid there. It's okay. You know what? 
All right, anyway, so that, that, that's kind of what it's like. And not only does Jesus notice this guy, right, but Jesus points it out to everybody. And he goes, hey, is it okay with you if I heal this guy on the Sabbath? See, this is not a theoretical discussion about spirituality. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to, to question these things as you have in just this discussion, but when a real-life person is there in the midst of you, looking right at you, what do you do? And nobody there says a word. And what you've got to understand is Jesus is supposed to be intimidated in the midst of this. Again, he's being carefully watched. But I think he starts to get a little angry inside. I think he starts to burn. All these people who claim to know God and love God don't care about this guy. And so Jesus touches this man in front of all of them, which is also against their law. He heals him on the Sabbath, which is against their law. And the host doesn't celebrate. You know, The, the host doesn't say to the guy, oh, wow, you're healed, you want to stay for dinner. He doesn't do that. So Jesus does what the host should do, and he bids the man farewell. You know, I love you. Thanks for, thanks for coming. And it's really awkward. And at this point, if Jesus has a smooth social radar, he's going to quickly change the subject and let it go and then move on to something else. But Jesus doesn't have a smooth social radar. It's one of the things I love about him so much. And so he speaks again. Verse 5, this is movement 2. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen in unto a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And then he's silent, and then everybody else is silent. Verse 6, and they could not reply to these things. See, this is not a comfortable silence where it's like, oh, it's great to be quiet. This is, this is a silence like you and your buddies are all hanging out together and your wife walks up and says, hey, did you take your prostate meds today? Everybody's all, ooh. Or she walks up and says, oh, I know you couldn't go poop all week. Did you use the suppository I gave you this morning? Just an awkward silence. That has never happened to me, by the way. Just throwing that out there so you all know. So for Jesus, this is like a really, really edgy moment. But the underlying issue here is dignity and worth. How much is a single human being worth? Somebody whose body isn't working right. Somebody who doesn't look so good. Because we're Americans. We are obsessed with worth. We want to know how much everything is worth. You know, if you want to know how much your car is worth, there's a little book for that, and it's called the what? The blue book. Exactly. Because if you buy a new car, and you drive it off a lot, and then you look up how much it's worth, you will be blue. Jesus is like the blue book source for the worth of a human being. And he talks about this a lot. Matthew 12, 11, and 12. He kind of repeats what he just said to these guys. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Or he says in Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Matthew 10, 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, humanly speaking, what's a sparrow worth? To a 10-year-old boy, it's worth a BB. That's about what it's worth, right? It's not worth much. It's just true, all right? In this culture, pennies were worth more than they are now. Obviously, but you know, a penny in that culture, you could buy a couple sparrows for, for a penny. And, and, this, and this is the idea that, that the, these sparrows seem so cheap to us, and yet they are very important to God. I think if Jesus used this analogy today, he would say, you know, you are worth more than many goldfish, though they are flushed and whatever. You know, that, that's kind of what he does. He says, to God, all these things that we don't care about are different. To God, even a sparrow is more valuable than you can imagine. God cares for them. He feeds them. He gives them twigs to make their, their nests in. He gives them air to fly in, girl sparrows to mate with. All that stuff, it doesn't happen by accident. I think the little attachment that we get to our own pets is a little reflection of God's love. 
God is so heavily invested in sparrows, he has a running inventory, that not one of them who falls to the ground, he doesn't know about. He cares about that. He says, and how about you? How about people? He goes, to give you some idea, even the hairs on your head are numbered. God sees every one of them. Some of them are easier to count than others. Yes, this is true, right? But the idea is when you care about somebody, you notice details. And the more you care, the more details you notice. When a baby is born, what do the parents do when they look at the fingers and toes for the first time? Okay, three of you know that. The rest of you, you're going to be terrible parents, okay? (laughs) Parenting 101, count the fingers and toes. Holy cow, people. Oh, my goodness. The bar wasn't set really high for that question. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so Jesus says, God just doesn't number your fingers and toes. God cares about you so much that he numbers the hairs on your head. He notices their quantity. He might even mourn when they fall out. Not as much as you mourn, but, you know, he he can mourn when when they fall out. And and so you have to understand that, that when God says this and Jesus says these things about who God is, it's very important to the dignity and worth of a person. Jesus says to these guys at this dinner, you all claim to love God. You claim to show that by how you value the Sabbath so much. But the reality is, if your child fell into a well, I mean, for Pete's sake, if your, if your animal fell into a well, you would pull it out. That guy was God's child. God cares about people more than anything else other than his own glory. Does anybody here have the moral clarity or the courage to speak up on behalf of that guy? And nobody did. And there's just silence. And it's brutal. Because I think they were going to watch Jesus, but Jesus has been watching them. They thought they were going to judge Jesus. Jesus, it turns out, is kind of judging them. And it's really awkward. And the host who convened this dinner has got to be thinking, I hope whoever talks next picks a safer topic. But Jesus talks next, which is great. And he doesn't pick a safer topic. This is all in one dinner. This is movement three, verse seven. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose their places of honor. This is who sits where at the dinner table. So whoever sits next to the host has the most honor. Now, I don't know if we do that so much today, but we do it more in the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, or the gadgets that we purchase. We're like, see what I have? Ah, look how cool I am. I'm proclaiming my worth and value. I have an iPhone 5S. It's just like the iPhone 5. It's got a little thumb scanner. But hey, I'm so cool because I have an iPhone 5. S. I think S stands for something. Anyway, and so, and and he looks at all this going on and jockeying for position. How we're trying to give our own selves worth and value. So Jesus comments on it. He says, I'm going to tell you a story. When you see, when you invite someone to a feast, here's an idea. You don't go for the seat of honor. That's what he tells them. And he says, you know, you actually begin to humble yourself. You begin to humble yourself. The seating arrangements at this dinner, they're all wrong. Somebody's got it messed up. You guys are about status and ego and competition. It's all built on the idea that some people have lots of worth and some people have less worth. You guys are supposed to be the ones who study and know the scriptures. The way it works in this book, and the kingdom of God is like all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who are humbled will be exalted. So Jesus says to the host, now let me give you some advice. Your seating chart's wrong. Stop seeing people in a way that feeds their narcissism and their arrogance and their superiority of who's the best and who's the handsomest and who's the prettiest and who's the strongest and who's the cleverest, who is the most successful. He goes, let me do your seating chart. You know, you're the host. Maybe you should go sit in the kitchen with the wait staff. That'll probably do your soul some good. And we all kind of do this sometimes. You ever been to a wedding? Don't raise your hand, but in the back of your mind, you ever think, man, if they really cared about me, I would sit closer to the main table. Well, if they really cared about me, well, they would let me go sooner to eat. That, that's how I always feel. When I'm, I'm like, you know, if they really cared about me, you'll see how important I am. I went to eat last. Okay. 
I'm not very important at all. That, that's kind of my thing when I, when I go to a wedding. And we all kind of do this. And so the guys at this dinner, they're, they're embarrassed. You know, they're, they're also a little furious, I think, though, because now they don't even know where to sit at the table to eat. And the host, again, is probably thinking, I hope Jesus doesn't have any more advice. And so Jesus turns to the host and he says, let me give you some more advice. <laughs> it's just great. Uh, movement number four. This is going to be the longest one. Um, this is verse 12 of chapter 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, there you go. Jesus clearly says, apparently, you don't have to ever invite your relatives over for dinner. I mean, you've probably been living that for most of your life thinking, see, who knew God was so pleased with me for ignoring my family? No, that's not what he says. If you thought that's what he said, you're scary, okay? You're scary. Jesus' teaching sometimes is often misunderstood because he's not giving a law here. What Jesus does a lot is he illustrates the difference in the life in the kingdom of God versus our own conventional wisdom and how we do life. Now, Jesus is capable of giving laws. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart. I think that's a law. We love God first. But we are such a legalistic people, we're trying to turn everything that are not laws into laws or formulas. So Jesus is not saying, never invite your relative for dinner. He's saying, in the kingdom of God, people aren't just always trying to prove how much they are worth by only doing things for other people who they seem to think have worth. It's not always just you trying to be strategic. That's not the kingdom. So Jesus says the next time you have a dinner, invite someone who wouldn't normally get invited. You know, maybe that crazy neighbor you got across the street or maybe that that coworker nobody talks to. Maybe you invite them. That's who you invite. And see, this would be very unusual for a Pharisee because the Pharisee would only invite the virtuous to their home. They would not invite the crippled or the lame or the blind. Anything malformed or defective was considered by the Pharisees to be unable to reflect the goodness and the rightness and the perfectness and the holiness of God. And so, therefore, nothing malformed was, was to be allowed, in their view, in the precincts of the temple. They believed the temple had already been corrupted by the Romans. Well, let's not any, let any deformed people in there because that would just corrupt it even more. And so they had this idea that they're going to try and call the nation to repentance. And they're going to reform it by treating their home as a miniaturized version of what they thought the temple should be. All the regulations they thought should be viewed, they would do that perfectly in their homes. So their homes were miniature little temples. Their bar for holiness was that, that high. And so Jesus comes in and he tells a prominent Pharisee, you need to invite the malformed and the defective into your home. That's like a deliberate slap in the face. What Jesus says is they bear the image of God just as much as you do. They are loved by God just as much as you are. They are forgotten and overlooked and mistreated a whole lot more than you have ever been. So if you love God, you will love them. And that's the idea that actually changed our country. All men are created equal. It's not a sentimental idea. It's not a personal preference. It's not an abstract value that just floats around out there in the ether. See, we live in a day where a lot of prestige is given to science and math. And not saying it shouldn't, okay? But there's this unspoken assumption that only those domains can ever only speak of something that's true because they can make, oh, empirical evidence that says these things are true. But if you think about it, that human beings are created equal, we know that is true. But it's not something you can prove and attest to. See, if if human worth is based upon some capacity in us, some empirical evidence, then any disability would mean that we would have diminished worth. Therefore, there is no good secular foundation for the claim that people are created equal. There isn't one. Okay? It's true because all people are made in the image of God. 
We are dearly loved by God. That is what makes it true. There are differences in talent and strength and beauty and charm and intelligence. It's like Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are no gradations of the image of God. See, the reason every person has great value and worth, according to Jesus, is that every person is loved by the Father. Therefore, every person has bestowed worth. It is not because of us. We don't have it in ourselves. It is given to us by God. Explain how this works. We have a cat at home. All right? I think the cat is worthless. It's not hard to think that about cats, okay? But my wife loves this cat. So I feed the cat, I pet the cat, sometimes I let it sleep on me. Doesn't sleep in our bedroom, that's my line, okay? But, you know, that's where it is. Now, this cat, though, has bestowed worth because of how I value my wife. I love her, so therefore I take care of the cat, okay? It's not that the cat is beautiful or adds to the common good of our home. Now, why does my wife love this cat? Because. Just, just because. Bruce Thaleman wrote this. Sometimes the strongest response of the human heart is just because. So if you're a wife here, you're married to you know, some dude, you know, why'd you marry him? You know, he's probably not the you know, best-looking dude in the world. He's probably not the sharpest knife in the drawer or the brightest bulb on the chandelier or anything like that. But why'd you marry him? You ask a lot of women, they're like, ah, because. You know, that's, that's why they're married. And, and, and why, so why does God love his people? I love this. Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other, any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. It's like it's not because you're the strongest, most impressive. And Israel and us forget this all the time. So God reminds them, it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God love Israel? Because. Because. And we all forget that and think, well, there's something so good and wonderful in me, and that's why God loves me more than other people. No, no, it's just because. That's God, that's the kind of God he is. He's the just because kind of God. He loves you because. See, Israel's, God's plan for Israel was that through them, and God's plans for us is that through us, his love and blessing would go to everybody because God loves every single human being just because. And this because heart of God gives every person worth. And when we neglect that, we do that to our own peril. If you go back to Luke 14, hopefully you're still there. And still in movement number four, Jesus says to the host, you think that by excluding these people, you are honoring God. But the truth is you are dishonoring God. When you exclude them, you are excluding him. He says, my advice to you is next time you put them on the guest list. And by this point, everybody's blood pressure is kind of going up. Luke 14, 15, it says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, some people read this and think, oh, great, somebody's finally agreeing with Jesus. That is not what is going on, okay? What happens is it's really uncomfortable, and someone's like, hey, how about those Red Sox? Anybody going to see the new Hobbit movie? Let's talk about the Hobbit movie. You know, that's, that's, that's what's going on. Oh, everybody's going to eat bread. You may disagree, but whoever eats there, it's going to be wonderful, right? And Jesus is like, what? And Jesus isn't distracted, which I think is, which is great. So he talks to this in uh, verse 16. He says, and he, so he talks about, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about this, this banquet you're talking about. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So all the people you would expect to be there, all of those who were initially invited, now aren't going to come. They don't show. And they send excuses that are so flimsy that they are deliberately insulting. They're trying to humiliate the master 
master who invited him. Now, I think the master is angry, but it's interesting because instead of taking retribution on these people, he expands the guest list. And so he says, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And so Jesus is sitting here talking about how the rule and the reign and the banquet of God, this feast is coming then and there through his person. And all the people who you think would say yes are saying no and giving lame, flimsy flimsy excuses. And they're deliberately trying to humiliate the master. Sounds like the dinner Jesus is at. Very interesting. And when, and when the scripture uses this word compel in verse 23, you know, compel them to come in, it's this is an important word in Middle Eastern culture because impoverished outsiders would be afraid to ever attend a dinner at a rich nobleman's house. They would assume that they were being mocked. They would assume that the guy was just doing it to make a name for himself. Oh, look how gracious he is. You were never supposed to accept that invitation because you, they would have thought, oh, you feel entitled to that. Politeness would require them to say no. It's kind of a little bit like if a guy go up, goes up to a girl and he says, man, you are so beautiful and gorgeous, you're incredibly lovely. Most girls are not going to go, well, I was thinking the same thing. Thanks. Most girls don't do that, right? They go, oh, no, no, oh, thank you. I saw. You know, they, they kind of deflect it. The master knows the people are going to say, not me, not him, not, not there. I, I couldn't do that. And so the master says, you have to let them know. You have to make them understand that I want them here. And this is the darkness that is in the human heart because this story was often misunderstood and this verse, this word compel, was actually through the history of the church used at times to coerce people to confess Christianity against their will by physical threat. You ever hear the Spanish Inquisitions? They used this verse as part of the justification for it. The master is not saying force people to come against their will. What the master is saying is just the opposite. He says they're going to think it's too good to be true. And so you, my servant, spare no effort to let them know how much I want them at my table. And how much did God want us at his table? Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins. Everything that separated us from God, Jesus died for to take away so relationship could be restored and we could be brought in. And Jesus now sends you and I as that servant to go to the streets and the alleyways and the country lanes and all those places that Jesus talked about. We find the forgotten and the overlooked and the dropout and the drugged out and the teenage pregnant runaway and the wealthy confused overachiever and the day laborer who doesn't speak a whole lot of English and the unvisited widow who's left all alone and the angry young man with no job and no dream. And you tell them there is room. God wants you at his table. There is another place there. This is one of the reasons why we do these agape meals. Because we intend for you to go out and make the proclamation of the gospel. God loves you. This is a small reflection of that. You are invited in. And how could we not show and share that with other people? Chris Say tells a story about when he was a kid. His dad would take him to Astro Games. And he said they always sat in the cheap seats because they didn't have a whole lot of money. That's why they sat there. But a lot of other people sit in the cheap seats because they saved money for beer that way. He said by the late evenings, there'd be beer on on people's bodies, on the floor. There'd be brawls breaking out all over the place. And he says, as a kid, I learned a lot of folks that we were sitting uh, next to that these were the bad people. There was one consistent drunk fan named Batty Bob. He would come to all the games wearing a rainbow wig and lead slurred cheers in the stands. I remember one time my dad went out and he sat with Batty Bob. He spent the whole game next to Batty Bob. Then he walked him to the parking lot to bring Batty Bob home with us. I was confused because this was one of the bad people. When we got home, my dad explained to me how God loved Batty Bob. 
I can remember thinking, really? Batty Bob? He stayed with us a few days to get back on his feet. This is when I started to realize God does not despise those people. He dearly loves them for the same reason he dearly loves me. And what's that reason? Because. Because. See, we must be a people who realize that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with rights. How do we know that? John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through See, when we read a story like this, a lot of times we think, oh, yeah, you know, I'm on Jesus' side. Too often, we're like the Pharisees. We really are. You know, we have our own standards. We, we think that, oh, you know, you, you have hurt and offend me, you know, five, ten years ago, and I'm going to make you climb on that cross and die. Or we, we, we've got all these crazy ideas where we think we are better than other people, and we're not. We're not. But even when you come to that place and you realize, I'm not, I'm, it's, it's just because. That, that's why it's because. That's when you come to the place where you understand what Jesus has done. And you stop trying to find your worth and your value in all of these things. And you simply understand that your dignity and worth has been bestowed upon you by a God that loves you. And this is one of the things that inspires me so much about Jesus. Because the world was changed by how he expressed dignity to his creation. A creation, quite honestly, that did not deserve it. A creation that crucified him. And he turns around and he shows it anyway. You have value because God loves you. This is one of the reasons that we as a church point people to communion every single week. Because communion is the place to remember that our God sent his son. And he came and he died. That's why you break that cracker like his body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that what separates us from God, all of our sin, all of this junk can be taken away. And we are invited in, as his people, to his meal, to share life with him again. It is beautiful. The band's going to come up. There are new couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you've been in a place in your life where you've set yourself above other people. You have things you just can't forgive that somebody else has done. Or, or maybe you feel like you have no dignity or worth at all. And you want someone to pray with you so you can understand that that is bestowed upon you by God. God gives you dignity and worth because of who he is. It is not based upon you. You don't, you don't have to go and, and try and make God love you or do all the right things so, so he gives you worth and value. You have it simply because he has bestowed it upon you. That's why you have it. There's offering boxes on the side of on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And there is some food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat, meet some other people. But, but don't miss the opportunity to, to talk to Mikey and sign up for an agape dinner. And, and if you're an energy senior hosting one, walk around to people and go, hey, where are you going? Are you signing up for anything? You coming? You know, and just twist the arm. Bring them along. Not, don't, like, compel them. You don't have to burn them out of stick or something. But, you know, you, let them know how much you really want them there. And hopefully your agape that you attend is something that truly reflects the grace and the goodness of God who cares for people. People can understand his kingdom better because of what they experience there. I mean, that, that is always the point, that we lift up Jesus, we understand what he has done, and so our lives are different because of what he has first done. It's based first in his person and lived out. We love him simply because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who live in such ways that reflect the goodness of you. Father, a lot of times in our lives, we don't live that way. We don't actually think 
people are worth as much as we are. We don't live in true equality. We live in a way that diminishes worth of those around us too much and too often. And I ask that you would help us to see clearly why we ourselves have dignity and worth because it is from you. And then that would then humble us in ways that we would show people the goodness of you by how we begin to treat those around us, how we begin to live. We are a people, God, who stand amazed in your presence of how wonderful our Savior's love is for us. And in one sense, there's no way we're going to really ever truly comprehend the magnitude and the majesty of it. But I ask that you would give us a glimpse so we could begin to live it so that all men would know how wonderful you are that as we lift you up, we would live lives that you call us to. Lives that truly show our Savior's love for us. Given first back to you and then to the entire world around us. Thank you for giving us dignity and worth and value. Have us find it in you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.